You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. There is this implicit trust, this core belief in everybody that I'm protected because I'm in my MS Teams, I'm in my my Slack tenant. I feel secure, right? And this is where people typically leave their, their, their shield down because they feel secure in that environment. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from Harbor Labs and the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. we got some good stories to share this week. And later in the show, Tobias Pischel, head of information and email security at Broadcom, talking about risks in chat applications. But first, a word from our sponsors at Know Before. We're not talking conspiracy theory when we say it's all connected. When it comes to InfoSec tools, effective integrations can make or break your security stack. Though not as common, the same should be true for security awareness training. Not only does Know Before deliver the world's largest library of security awareness training, but they also provide a way to integrate the various elements of your existing security stack to help you strengthen your organization's security culture. Stay with us, and in a few minutes, we'll hear from our sponsors at Know Before about how you can integrate security awareness with your tech stack like never before. All right, Joe, before we jump into our stories here, we got a little bit of follow-up here. What do you got for us? Yes, we do. Uh, I don't know if anybody remembers me talking about this young lady. This was Madison Russo, who was a uh, a GoFundMe scammer. Hmm. She pretended to have cancer. Oh. And we were talking about how the cops came into her uh, house and found a bunch of evidence, and she had, like, uh, sailing bags and, and uh, the, the tubes that attached to the sailing bags taped to her face. Oh. Uh, and then was on GoFundMe asking for money for help with her cancer treatment, and it turned out to all be fake. Well, she has pled guilty okay. um, to soliciting over $37,000 from donors on GoFundMe. Wow. And uh, she is awaiting sentencing right now. All right. So I said I was going to follow up on that one. Yeah. I, right. I'd, like to know if, I'd like to know what the sentence is that she gets. Yeah. Well, hopefully uh, some justice done there. Yes. Yeah. All right, well, let's jump into our stories here. Joe, you want to kick things off for us? Yes, Dave, I have a terrible story this week. <laughs> way, to, way to sell it, Joe. Yeah, it, it's not, <laughs> not happy at all, actually. Yeah. Um, all right. It's, it's, the, the story I'm quoting from is coming from the New York Post, but I've seen it on ABC News, and I've actually got something from Fox News here as well. Mm-hmm. But it's about uh, a high school football player named Jordan DeMay who killed himself back in March of uh, 2022. Hmm. Uh, he was the victim of a sextortion scam, and we've mentioned that these things happen uh, and people have been driven to suicide by these. Right. But he was scammed by uh, Nigerians, uh, three Nigerians who impersonated a young girl mm-hmm. and uh, a girl his age, actually. Yeah. Uh, and convinced Jordan to send them compromising pictures of himself. Yeah. Right. Which is easy to do to a teenage boy. Right. Right. When... 
they 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 started immediately extorting money from him. He said, "I have uh, I have three hundred dollars of the thousand dollars you you want from me." And and he and the guy said, uh, "Well, you got to get more, or I'm going to expose you and send this to everybody." Mm-hmm. Uh, and he uh, Jordan then said, "You know, you're driving me to to kill myself." And this guy said, "Well, you better go do it because I will ruin you." Wow, is what he said. Uh, and Jordan did wind up killing himself wow. uh, last year. Hmm. So uh, this was done on an Instagram account. So Meta, who owns Instagram, yeah, uh, this is from the Fox News story. Uh, they had a statement that was released by Antigone Davis, who is the company's global head of safety. We want teens to have safe, positive experiences online and we work to help prevent and stop criminals from targeting them with sextortion schemes. Uh, this includes cooperating with law enforcement to help protect vulnerable teens from these horrific crimes and bring their perpetrators to justice. In addition to the work we do to protect teens from sextortion, we also help fund the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children's Take It Down, which allows teens to stop the spread of their illegitimate images online. Hmm. Okay, so uh, I want to talk about Take It Down. That is from the National Center of Missing Exploited Children. That is a great resource if you are the victim of uh, of a sextortion crime. Right. I don't know if it's only available to people who are underage, hmm. uh, but it, you can say, here are the images I don't want circulated, and all the social media companies will say, okay, we're not going to circulate those anymore. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what the technology is behind it, if it's using simple hashes or using something like uh, Microsoft's photo DNA technology. Yeah. I would guess it's probably using something like photo DNA. Okay. Um, because that's a better way to describe a picture as a, uh, how to say it, like a hash. It's kind of like a hash, but it's not a hash. Yeah. Because similar, very similar inputs will have, will have very similar, if not the same outputs, which mm. a hash, uh, very similar, in, very similar inputs, but slightly different inputs will have vastly different hashes. Okay. Uh, hash outputs. So uh, that tool is out there for everybody to use. Uh, part of me really wants to hold Meta accountable here, uh, but they've done a, a lot. They've cooperated with law enforcement. And in fact, there is a justice.gov uh, posting that came out recently uh, in May, back in May, yeah, saying that they have uh, cooperated or worked with the Nigerian authorities, and they have three people in custody in this case. Oh. Which is good. Wow. Uh, one of them is Samuel Ogoshi, who is the one they alleged uh, they alleged communicated with, with Jordan. Huh. Uh, and was the one that goaded him into killing himself. Uh, these guys are up on some serious crimes. Uh, they are... Agoshi is charged with sexual exploitation and attempted sexual exploitation of a minor, resulting in death. Uh, they also charge all three men with conspiracy to sexually exploit minors. Uh, these guys are looking at a lot of prison time. Agoshi, if he is if he is extrad- extradited to the U.S., could face the rest of his life behind bars. Wow, which is good. I think I think he should face. I, th- I hope he gets extradited. Uh, the Nigerians, the Nigerian government hates this kind of stuff goes on in their country. Hmm. They're really not pleased with it. Uh, so they were, I would imagine they were probably very eager, I'm speculating, but they were probably very eager to cooperate with the United States authorities here to get these guys and bring them to justice. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's a sad case. One of the things I want to reiterate here is that uh, something you've said over and over again is talk to your kids. Tell them there's nothing that would ever make me 
uh, stop caring about you. Yeah. This is a terrible, terrible situation for Jordan's parents and for Jordan as well. Yeah, it's just tragic. It is tragic. Um, and one, uh, of the things, one of the things I'm reminded of is the David Letterman case when somebody tried to extort him. Mm. Uh, David Letterman was, was cheating on his spouse, uh, and the woman he was cheating with said, we're going to expose you, uh, if I'm recalling this correctly. And what David Letterman did was he just laid all the cards on the table at that point in time and took everything away from the person that was trying to extort, extort him. And I'm pretty sure that woman did jail time. Mm. Uh, for trying to extort him, because that is a crime and that is illegal. Yeah. Um, so if this happens to you, lay the cards on the table. That's your best option. Just say, you know what? This is what's happened. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not happy. I'm not proud of what I've done. But you know what? We all know that you're a 17 year old kid. Yeah. Inside every 17 year old kid is is a uh, is is not the mind of a person who makes good and rational decisions. A, <laughs> and the reason I know this is because I was a 17-year-old kid who <laughs> didn't make good right. and rational decisions. Yeah. Uh so I, I but the thing is from your perspective as a as a young person, it seems like this is world-ending. Trust me, it's not. Nobody will remember this in in a couple of years and we'll all be glad that you're still around. Yeah. This is not something you kill yourself over. Yeah. This is something you go, I screwed up. Let's, right. uh, here's how we're going to have, we're going to have to deal with this. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure that 99% of the time, the parents would rather have you come to them and tell them about it more than 99% of the time. Parents, there is that rare outlier where it might be more dangerous to come forward, but, yeah. um, that that's going to be the outlier. That's going to be the exception and not the rule. Your parents are going to be much happier if you come forward and tell them what happened and tell them how upset and distressed you are about it. Yeah, and tell someone. I mean, tell even, someone. even if you don't, if you're not comfortable telling your folks, if you have a, you know, someone at your church or or at school, a counselor, a teacher, right. someone you trust, a best friend, anyone, uh, you just can't keep it bottled up inside. So, even just sharing it with someone will help. Yeah, dealing with these things on your own is emotionally exhausting. Yeah, yeah, and you know, understand there there are, I understand the feelings of shame. That you made a mistake, right? And particularly, this kind of mistake is is particularly shamed in our society. But um, you know, people love you, and they'll forgive you, and you'll move on from it, right? So. And and we've got to move away from this kind of mistake being shamed. I mean, there have been stars who have had their accounts hacked and had their nudes leaked. Yeah. Um. And you know, it's 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 that kind of thing. You know, these people they 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 move on with their careers. They they have been the victim of a crime. And that's what Jordan was here. Jordan was the victim of a crime. Right. It's not, it's not like Jordan wasn't doing something that his peers probably do every single day. Right. Um, it, it's, he, he was doing something that, or that was normal. I, I guarantee you, Dave, as much as we don't want to admit this, <laughs> as much as we as parents don't want to say this, I don't have teenage parent kids anymore, but <laughs> I do. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna say I'm gonna say this, and you might get mad at me. But there's a good chance that your kid is 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 trading nudes with a friend. You know. Yeah, I mean, my 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 wife and I refer to the teenage brain as the vortex of chaos. Right. Oh, and that uh, is an accurate description. <laughs> and I think, you know, it's right, and it's so easy for them to lose track of rational thought, and you know, there are a few things that. Uh, that can lead you away from rational thought than that kind of, you know, sexual, physical titillation. It just short circuits right. your, your, your rational thinking. And so, you know, anybody who says 
they haven't been there is probably fooling themselves or lying to themselves or, or something. Or, I'm going I'm to tell you something I was told when I was in high school. Yeah. Um, and my parents would say this, or, you know, my father in particular would say, this is supposed to be the best time of your life. Yeah. Because you know? after you get out of high school, it's all work. Okay. Right. Uh, and I had a teacher in high school named Phil Campbell. He was a great teacher, All fantastic right. teacher. He since passed on. Yeah. But he was he was a, a good teacher. And he said, you know what? Your parents probably tell you this is the best time of your life. And it's not. It's one of the <laughs> hardest, worst times of your life. Right. You know, when you are when you're an adult, all those hormones have leveled out and every you you think much more clearly. I remember middle school as being probably the worst time of my life. High school wasn't that much better. <laughs> okay. Right? So yeah. I can't imagine. I, can, I, I know exactly what it's like. It's a miserable time of life, but everybody has to go through it. Right? And yeah, it's, it's true. It's the time when you're supposed to be moving into adulthood and people are looking at you going, you're supposed to be doing adult things now. Why are you still doing these stupid, screwed up things? But you know what? There's a perfectly logical explanation for that. And that yeah, is that you're, you're, you're yeah. still a kid. You're, you're still 17 right, years old. Right. You're caught between those two worlds. Yeah, you're caught between those worlds. And that is a very awkward and hard place to be. Yeah. And, yeah. But trust me, it does get better on the other side of that. Yeah. Well, I think your, your uh, advice is good, particularly if you're a parent. Just be deliberate about this. Yes. Let your kids know that if anything like this happens, you're there for them and that there is no, there's nothing so shameful that it's worth taking your life over. Yeah. There's always a way out. There is. So, all right. Well, we'll have a link to that story in the show notes uh, for sure. Uh, my story uh, is uh, a little more uh, thank, uh, blessedly run-of-the-mill, I guess, yes, yeah. <laughs> for today's show. Yeah. Uh, this is from the folks over at passwordmanager.com. Uh, and this is about uh, fake job scams. Um these folks recently did a survey, and uh, they found that one in three recent job seekers have been tricked into applying for a fake job scam. Hmm. That seems high to me. I, 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 so that's a remarkably high rate of success for these guys. Yeah. So they they this uh, they surveyed 663 Americans who've searched for a job within the last two years. And in their findings, they found that 38% of recent job seekers encountered scam job postings, 32% were tricked into applying for a fake job, and 15% had personal information stolen, 9% had money stolen by scammers. So almost 1 in 10 really? lost money from a scammer. Huh. Uh, they go on and they say 4 in 10 respondents... Uh, found postings that turned out to be a scam, and the number one location was. You want to guess? Uh, the scam site. Yeah, uh, what I'm number guess, one scam site. What do you think? Like the location from uh, what website were the most scams on? Hmm. I've already seen the spreadsheet. Oh, okay. Or the the graph here, so I, I know it. But my first guess would have been Indeed, but okay. that's wrong. All right. Yeah, well, Indeed is number two, so, yeah. I mean, it's close. The top three are Craigslist, Indeed, and Facebook Marketplace, now, and I'm they're not, I'm not neck surprised neck. that Craigslist is number one, mm -hmm. but I do not consider that to be a legitimate job site. No? I don't, no, I don't, I would never go to Craigslist and look for a job. In fact, I would expect that to be nothing but scams. Okay, interesting. Don't you have to pay for a job listing on Craigslist? I, I don't know. Do. I I've never made one. I've, I've only sold and bought a couple things on Craigslist. Yeah. And every time I, I bought something on Craigslist, it felt really shady. 
<laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's how Craigslist makes their money is that because that's the like one of the one of the things that they charge for is where job so postings. many yeah, where so many other things are free. Mm-hmm. So you know, you would think that having that sort of barrier if someone has to pay for a listing would slow the scammers down, but evidently it not in this case. I mean, yeah. we look at the top 3 here. Craigslist, Indeed, and Facebook Marketplace, they all require you to pay something to have them listed. I also so. wouldn't look for a job on Facebook Marketplace. No, I, I wouldn't either. I don't like that you have to look for jobs on LinkedIn now. Mm. Um, LinkedIn mm. has a big job market. And I, I think, and I've, I've looked through it a couple of times, not that great. Mm. Not that great of a, of a job search thing. Yeah. I mean, it totally tracks that the scammers are going to go where the most people are. So these are popular platforms. I'll bet Craigslist is cheaper than any of the other options, though. Could be. Could be. And like you, I would have guessed Indeed because that, I think that's the first online job site that comes to mind to me. Right. Uh, Monster.com is probably second. And and interestingly, Monster.com had about a third the number of scam job postings, according to this survey, as Indeed did. So I wonder, is that because of, is it less popular? Is it I, more I expensive? I think Monster.com has really gone uh, down in user percentage because the question is, where have you encountered scam job postings? Mm-hmm. So Monster being low on the list could indicate that there are fewer scam jobs on Monster, but it could also indicate that fewer people go to Monster to find jobs. Yeah. They say that uh, the most commonly reported industries were retail, healthcare, and service industries. That Mm -hmm. doesn't surprise me at all. Uh, And then salary ranges. Again, this tracks the most targeted salary range is $25,000 to $50,000. Really? That's the the range of the scam job? Yeah. Yeah. So I think why that doesn't surprise me is because... I think you're targeting a less sophisticated worker. Right. You're also than, targeting somebody who might be, who might not be making that much to begin with. Right. Uh, minimum wage in this country is pretty low. It's around fifteen thousand dollars a year. Yeah. So if you're offering twenty five to fifty thousand uh, dollars, different states have higher minimum wages though. By the right. way, Maryland, yeah. I think it's going up to fifteen dollars an hour, which is essentially thirty grand a year if you have a full time job. Yeah. Um, but. Yeah, the fact that you're the fact that you're targeting this group of people says to me that you're targeting younger, more inexperienced people. Yeah, and pro- maybe people who don't have as much of a cushion behind them, where their their um, their need to find a job quickly, right, may be heightened versus yeah. some of the people who have you know who have a history of making more money, right. So they're likely to be in a more emotional state. So, Dave, I'll tell you, I have a uh, a job, an email address that I use for job sites and things like that. Okay. And it's a professional-looking email address. It's not like, um, which I, I suggest everyone do. They should have a job, an email just for job searches. Mm. Um, so in that job search email, I check it occasionally. Mm-hmm. But I just recently checked it. Uh, and it says, we have an open career for you. This is this is one of the myriad of emails I get about this. Uh as the shipping and receiving manager at some company. Yeah. Right? And I am convinced these are just jobs to be a package mule. Oh, (laughs) okay. Yeah. That's what I think these are. Right. But I get probably four or five of these a month. Hmm. And it's always the same pitch. And I'm amazed that they're going after it. They've gotten my name from some job site. They've got some old database. This, This one comes from a Hotmail address. Yeah. So... 
yeah, I don't think this is actually Microsoft or Hotmail trying to recruit me to be <laughs> to be, to be a uh, shipping and receiving manager. This is just some some guy trying to scam me. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll have a link to the story in the show notes. There's some other interesting little tidbits here. They they track uh, you know what companies are the the most likely to be impersonated for scams. Uh, how many folks have had personal information stolen? That sort of stuff. So. Uh, it's an interesting survey, not a huge number of people surveyed, but I think enough to, it's enough, to enough make to it give a, you a good confidence interval. Like think, I think 95%. Yeah, nice little representative thing there. Again, that's from the folks over at passwordmanager.com. All right, Joe, it is time to move on to our catch of the day. Dave, our catch of the day comes from Albert, who writes, Hi, Dave and Joe. Not sure why I keep getting German phishing emails, uh, but we, we don't have time to go into this, but Albert did go back and forth with this person. Oh. It's pretty funny. But <laughs> I just wanted to uh, to start with the, um, just read the, the opening email that this person sent Albert. Okay. Uh, it says, Hello, I am a Swedish philanthropist, anthropologist, and publisher. I am the founder of the Sigrid Rosing Trust, one of the largest philanthropic foundations of Great Britain and owner of the Grant Magazine and Grant Books. I hear about people dying from COVID-19 every day and the challenges everyone faces in these difficult times faces faces. And that's why I offered to accept these donations by distributing 5% of my wealth. This virus brought us friends, family, and it has brought many families to it, made me very sad in one way or another, so I have decided to help as little as possible. (laughs) The world is facing an unprecedented challenge. Societies and economies around the world are facing this one challenge affected by the escalation of the COVID-19 pandemic. The world is coming together to fight the COVID-19 pandemic and brings governments, organizations from all industries and individuals together to respond to this pandemic outbreak. The world solidarity, the worldwide solidarity and support through this common challenge was phenomenal. I know that the World Health Organization is the world is leading in coordinating <laughs> efforts and supporting countries that prevent, detect, and respond to a pandemic. Everyone can now directly support the WHO coordinated response. Individuals and organizations contributing to the spread of the pandemic want to help and fight to support the WHO and its partners can now donate through the COVID solidarity I have done and would also like you to help some people as soon as you receive your donation. I don't have much to say about myself right now, but I'm very happy about it. So I want you, your family, and your friends are happy because I am happy to give the sum of 1,000 euro donate. I give your email from Google Inc. email list selected. Please note that this is my money and I give it to you <laughs> around to verify this. Check my Wikipedia. My donation of 1,000 euro may seem small to you, but I think it would do a lot to improve standards contribute. I would like you to provide the information, fill out below, and send me for documentation creation at the end of the report donation to your specified bank account. I look forward to it. Soon to see smiles in you and your family. Wow. All and right. Then- this person goes on to ask for whole names, gender, age, single or married, address, profession, telephone number. Yeah. But funnily, doesn't ask for any banking information. <clears throat> no, and it's signed, Miss Sigrid Rousing. Now, I did a little bit of poking around. Yeah. Sigrid Rousing is a philanthropist from Sweden. Oh. Uh, a real person. So this person is obviously not Sigrid Rousing. My grandmother's name was Sigrid. Was it really? And she was Swedish. It's a very 
Good name. I like names with G's in them. <laughs> okay, fair enough. I don't, and I don't know why. So, like, I've always thought that like Ingrid was a was a beautiful name. Yeah, Gretchen. I know that uh, a lot of people don't would you know would uh, disagree with me on this. I, I don't know why, but I found these Germanic names uh, like Ingrid, Gretchen, yeah. uh, Sigrid, Olga. Nothing wrong with that. I like them. Yeah. I also like names with V's. I don't know why. But, but, <laughs> uh, I digress. The, as I often do. And today I've digressed in the most bizarre digression. Uh, thank you, Albert, for sending this in. This is obviously just an advanced fee scam mm-hmm. with some personal identifiable information gathering as well. That's always valuable. If these guys get enough responses with this PII, they can actually sell that list uh, to other scammers uh, and make some money that way. These guys are looking to monetize everything. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, we would love to hear from you. If there's something you'd like us to consider for the show, you can email us. It's hackinghumans at n2k.com. Back to the concept of integrations. Nobefore's security coach uses standard APIs to quickly and easily integrate with your existing security products from vendors like Microsoft, CrowdStrike, Cisco, and dozens of others. Security coach analyzes alerts your security stack generates to identify events related to any risky security behavior from your users. With this information, you can set up real-time coaching campaigns to target risky users based on those events from your network, endpoint, identity, or web security vendors. These campaigns enable you to coach your users at the moment the risky behavior occurs, with contextual security tips delivered via Microsoft Teams, Slack, or email. With 35 integrations and counting, Security Coach delivers the insight you need to improve your organization's security culture. Learn more about Security Coach at knowbefore.com slash security coach. That's knowbefore.com slash security coach. Joe, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Tobias Pischel. He is head of information and email security at Broadcom. And we're talking about some risks in chat applications. Here's our conversation. What we have to realize is email is dead to an extent where that story has been around for the last 20 years. And I think it really took off over the last decade or so now with the tools around collaboration for Slack teams, Google Chat, and so on, which makes it relatively easy to to collaborate within an organization to exchange information. And so we've seen, and some of the the analyst runs out there have uh, predicted some additional growth with some of the new platforms that are coming on or additional expansions of these platforms. But we see definitely a strong adoption in large enterprise organizations um, because of the flexibility that those tools give. They are even now starting to to be used for some of the DevOps and some of the alerting and monitoring in organizations. So it becomes part of the, the broader ecosystem for an organization these days. And how are organizations approaching this from a security point of view? Do, are people understanding the potential risk here? Partially, I would say. I think it really comes back to security has been for the better half of, of the decade um, an afterthought. When you think it through... Who is choosing those kind of platforms? Who is choosing in an organization 
what to use in terms of, let's say, Teams, Slack, and so on. It always comes back to those are being great collaboration tools. Those are being used in, by kind of the workplace teams, the IT teams that make the decision on this. And security is literally the after, uh, aftermath and the afterthought. So what has to happen there is, is the shift that to bring in the security teams early on and to really have a, a mindset change uh, to actually have a threat model for those applications because they're offering the same capabilities when it comes to attacks as, let's say, a classic email system would be. But then again, because of the, the, the nature of collaboration and productivity, security is not the, 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 the decision maker in, this, in, in the criteria or in the selection process. Yeah, I think about, you know, our own use of this uh, here at um, CyberWire. And uh, I, I guess it, it doesn't really cross my mind that uh, is this communication encrypted? You know, who can see it? Can my, if I have a private message between myself and one of my colleagues, uh, can my boss read it? Can IT read it? You know, I, I think most people probably either don't know or don't think much about the uh, the degree to which this stuff could be uh, shared with other people, either intentionally or otherwise. Correct, and that, that's just that's just the beginning of that, right? It's, it's really just the the table stakes of uh, the sessions encrypted. I think the the concept of zero trust really a, a applies here because when when we look at it, it goes a level deeper. From you know, just on the why is it encrypted and can somebody else read it? I think that's that's when you look at that, it's, it's, it's a commonality. But then the second part is really when you apply something like a zero trust model and you assume breach, right? And I think where we really see an interesting scenario uh, is those tokens that those applications are using, Slack, Teams, again, uh, those are at risk. And I think this is what we have to consider in kind of the threat model. Um, so imagine that you have an organization that just rolled out Slack or Teams. Imagine now in the next step that you have every of, of, of your users um, logging into Slack, interacting with the platform. And the next thing happened, some developers are starting with it as well. And people get more comfortable with it, share maybe some personal information on it. They share eventually some business relevant data on it. And then to the next step, an attacker gets hold of the token, either because development team that secure kind of the application tokens properly or a user machine is eventually compromised and the token gets gets lost right then in that situation an attacker with the token has access to your full message history on all of the channels and all of kind of the workspaces all of the messages that you know they can literally anticipate how you what human being you are based on the conversations you have had your writing style and in this case really start using that token more efficiently for their own purpose. And this is the situation that I think, what I just say, imagine, is actually the reality. That's what we have seen with organizations, customers that have been fallen victim to those type of attacks these days. Now, when you say the token, can you explain that for folks who might not be familiar with it? Is that the, is that the thing that identifies you as being who you are? Um, pretty much. Um, there's a little bit more context to this one, but the token is basically what sits on your endpoint or sits on your device, uh, which authorizes you with certain roles and permissions within the application. So Toby, as an example, when I log in in the morning and I go to Slack, the token basically grants me the permission that I can write messages to you, as an example, or on a channel, or basically I have no other permissions. And same for, let's say, application permissions. So the token is pretty much your key that helps you to unlock the door to then enter 
every every part of the house or maybe a room is closed, right? And it provides all of that context. Uh, and that's, that's what a token is really useful. And would someone be able to gather this token if, if they compromised your browser? How, how would they find access to that? So how they find access to this is typically it's common stored locations on the endpoint where those applications store those tokens. And then, as I said, there's, there's the second risk there is around uh, the developers using those tokens and eventually creating new uh, new app integration, new services that can make your life easier again. But then check in that token, which is access to your, let's say, Slack tenant as an example, on GitHub. And if that's a public repository, then obviously you have a problem because now the token is out publicly known by everybody, literally. Same, obviously, with some of the uh, info stealers that we have seen harvesting those tokens from Windows devices, as an example, and and sharing it, um, again, through other applications so that the attacker has access to it. Um, just uploading that file or just uploading that token to a, a, a common file storage application, which then the attacker has access to and can use that token onwards. Is this the sort of thing where multi-factor authentication could help? Um, not really, and this is this is the interesting part, right? Uh, multi-factor authentication only helps when you authenticate to the service originally, right? What happens typically after the authentication is that the token is generated and placed on your device, right? And and at that point, you don't have to re-authenticate. That token at that point is ex- exactly the keys onwards for uh, for accessing and uh, collaborating uh, as you in in that tenant. Right. So it's the classic balance between convenience and security, right? I mean, I one of the nice things about a tool like Slack or, or Teams is that I don't have to log in every time. <laughs> but, on, but on the other hand, as you point out, that could uh, lead to some insecurity. Correct. And that's, that's where some of the recommendations are really as well. When, when you look at kind of the guidance that those, those platforms give you, it's like, hey, just rotate your key. And rotating the key is obviously one thing because it's still how often do you want to re-authenticate, right? And as you said, I enjoy going in the morning, open my computer, it just works. I don't have to re-authenticate to Slack, right? Um, mm-hmm. What if I do that every hour? Then you lose the productivity aspect of it because you have to re-authenticate every hour. Um, but then again, you shouldn't have your tokens obviously running for, for you know, a month or a year at the same time. But this is where some of the security countermeasures really come in to help and, uh, and provide additional context to secure those applications in an efficient way. Well, let's dig into that. I mean, what are some of the additional things that people can do? So for this, we need to really understand what are some of the common attacks that are being executed. One of those are, obviously, as you said, get the token, get access, um, and, and get access as you to the platform, right? When it really comes to those attacks, then you have the same logic as we apply to email security in the past, right? Email security, what we've learned over the years is, I can use it as an infiltration for uh, malicious files, for malicious links, phishing links as an example. Or over the last couple of years, those business email compromise type of things, uh, those impersonation attacks. And at that point, the same variety of tools are available obviously on those platforms. Why? Because in collaboration, you can exchange files, you can exchange links to some sites, and you have obviously access, in this case, as me, to the platform. So if I uh, send a message to my colleague and say, can you do this transaction for me, which maybe is a financial transaction, in this situation, 
my colleague will probably execute and not question twice. Why? Because it is on this so-called trusted platform Slack that we're only using internally. And this, this kind of misbelief of and this implicit trust of this is an internal application, nothing can go wrong, which we have over the last 20 years literally learned that for email it doesn't happen. This kind of implicit trust is still there for those collaboration applications, right? So when we look at tools specifically to address those things, then I think we really need to we need to dig in uh, what those applications provide today already. And some of those have some table stakes like basic virus filters, or you know you can not execute any 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 code on those, or you can not upload let's say any uh, any executable files and so on. And still to this point, those are by factory default, not enabled. The reason is because those collaboration platforms, right? Those are not security platforms in the first place. So enabling and understanding those capabilities that the platform provides and then bring additional capabilities in like malware scanning is table stakes these days. Um, eventually sandbox files that are sitting in your Slack channel uh, eventually run URL protection on URLs that are being shared uh, within Slack, within Teams, making sure that you have insight into the, 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 the threats or the potential threats that are going around within your tenant and maybe laterally move. And then last but not least, also UBA being a big topic. The reason why I'm saying UBA is imagine an impersonation attack. If I just send a message to you asking for financial transaction, that's great. An attack that we have seen in an organization that we work with uh, is somebody using um, various stolen tokens and then starting to post messages with, say, your Windows security update for this month, right? People obviously believe that at that point and download and start executing and eventually uh, uh, have malware spreading in the environment like fire. At the same time, having the controls that, let's say, UBA can provide, the visibility into how many messages does Toby really post on a given day or maybe on a Friday afternoon, then in that situation... You have the visibility that there's an abnormality that can help address, in this case, those type of situations where impersonation attacks or malware is being spread across the organization from an outsider attack. And UBA is uh, user behavior analytics. Ah. So, like, like, oh, like very simple frequency learning. You can say, like, how often if if I send every day twenty Slack messages, that's great. But what if on a Friday afternoon where I typically don't work, right? Then in right. that situation, I have a thousand messages that are being generated. And that's an abnormality that, that eventually uh, helps to identify those, those situations and then address those situations. Right. Or suddenly I'm, I'm logging in from Eastern Europe somewhere where I've never been before, right? <laughs> yeah. I, I think your point is really excellent in that there's a sense of trust with these apps. In other words, if, if I get a request from a colleague or my boss, if that comes through on email, so much of the training that we've gotten says that we need to be uh, careful with that. We need to scrutinize that, really check the details before we take action. But I don't think we have a similar skepticism when it comes to, to these sorts of collaboration tools. Exactly. As I, as I mentioned, there is this implicit trust, this core belief in everybody that I'm protected because I'm in my... MS Teams, I'm in my, my, my Slack tenant. What could go wrong? Because this is, after all, an internal tool where we're maybe not federated with somebody. I feel secure, right? And this is where people typically leave their, their, their shield down because they feel secure in that environment. We have done everything over the last 20 years when it comes to, let's say, 
email security and, and as you said, training people don't click on links and emails, right? This kind of mindset has not transformed or has not been evolved yet into those collaboration platforms where people generally, as I said, leave their guard down and in that case, click on links, execute things. And this is where attackers definitely take the advantage of humans and the, the, the core implicit trust that they have to those platforms in the first place. So suppose I'm the person at my organization who is in charge of, uh, of our Slack instance here or our Teams instance here. Are, are there any tips that you can share, uh, ways that we can uh, better secure them? I think number one is really uh, enable some of those core security controls uh, that the platform provides. Um, typically, those start with rotate your token or rotate your token often. As I said, you have to find the right balance um, daily, weekly. But then again, it comes back to assume breach that this token eventually gets breached. Add additional capabilities um, like content scanning to those platforms. Uh, if they are built in, great. A lot of the uh, these tools do not have uh, the advanced capabilities like URL scanning or sandboxing of files, especially when it comes to like zero-day attacks. So leverage those tools that, let's say, a Caspi can provide. And then in addition to that, leverage some of those risk analytics tools to identify with yeah, user behavior analytics where there, there is an abnormality in terms of posting behavior or download or upload behavior where you can identify those situations quicker and then quicker respond to those ones uh, by, as I said, locking out accounts or eventually removing uh, malicious content, malicious links from these platforms before users even click on those. And this is where the Caspi, as an example, has some of those table stakes and really complements and brings and uh, steps up the security to those collaboration tools. Joe, what do you think? Dave, I've said it before. I'll say it again. Email is terrible. Chat apps are better. Hmm. Um, but there's some caveats with that. Okay. I'll tell you why email is terrible. It's because anybody can put anything into your, into your inbox. They don't have to be on your system. They don't have to gain access to your system to, to, uh, be able to send you an email. Right. Whereas with Slack, somebody has to be invited to the channel or the server or whatever it is. Uh, same with discord, same with whatever chat app you use. Uh, somebody has to be, uh, connected. Yeah. to you in order to do that. Right. That does leave you with some more vulnerability in that you're just going to assume that it's safer, mm. right? And Tobias talks about that here. You know, when I first started uh, working with instant messaging clients, the very first one I was on was AOL Instant Messenger. Do you remember AOL Instant sure. Messenger? Yeah, absolutely. I thought that was a fantastic technology when it came. Yeah. And we actually used it at work. Yeah. And we used it at work until our IT security company, our team said, our security team said, no, we're blocking that because it's a vector for uh, viruses and things and people can send you files. And we were using it for sending uh, messages. I don't think we used it to send files back and forth. That would have been silly because we knew that everything went up to AOL at the time. Right. So we just used communication. Also, it was kind of unencrypted. It was not really secure. Yeah. Um, but it did make things work well. So, so when they... Um, when they banned it and we needed to start using a chat app, we started using one that, a service we paid for mm. that was good. But a AOL Instant Messenger was also bad for the same reason email's bad. Anybody could send you a message on that. Mm. You could just send a message out of the blue to anybody. Do you remember doing that? 
I do not. No? <clears throat> no, my, my wife would get a lot of things because she was on AOL earlier enough that she, her, her AOL address was her first name at AOL.com. Right. Uh, <laughs> so it was easy to, you know, people just put a list of names in. And right. So she'd get all kinds and of they stuff. they wind up getting it. Yeah. Getting a hold of her. Yeah. Uh, people are only partially getting the security risks here. Mm. Well, it seems like security is an afterthought, according to Tobias. Yeah. Which is correct. Uh, people should be involving their security teams early in the process. If you're going to go with a chat application, whether it's Teams, whether it's uh, the Google chat application or, or Slack or whatever, yeah. uh, your security team should be involved from the beginning. And right. how you manage it should be, uh, should be secure. That's very important. Uh, your question about privacy is really important when you ask about, uh, you know, does my employer have access to these messages? If you're operating on your employer's system, employer-owned, employer-provided system, whatever that system is, if it's your laptop, if it's, uh, if it's a chat app, if it's Teams, assume that your employer can read everything. Right. Don't, don't assume that it's private. Right. Just assume that they have access to it. Right. And <laughs> the reason you assume that is because they may actually – be legally required to have access to that thing. Right. could be a compliance thing. It, could, it ha- may be compliance, like with Sarbanes-Oxley. Mm-hmm. Um, they may have to com- comply with that, uh, with that regulation by recording all of your messages in plain text in some server. Right. So don't ever assume that your employer's uh, system is private for you to use to talk to people about personal matters. Right, right. Uh, unless you're okay with that. <laughs> or to talk bad about the boss. Right, right. or talk bad about the boss. Yeah, that's, yeah, don't do that on yeah. corporate systems either. Yeah. Uh, probably best not to do that anyway, right? <laughs> Tobias spends a lot of time talking about these tokens, these authentication tokens. Yeah. Uh, and it's interesting that the, the multi-factor authentication cannot help you if, you're, if your authentication tokens are are stolen. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is multi-factor authentication is there to help you establish the the session where you get the token. Right. But once you have that token, the assumption is you're authenticated. Mm-hmm. So you're beyond you're in the workflow beyond the multi-factor authentication step. Mm-hmm. Um you know, immediately upon hearing this problem, I came up with a bunch of different little solutions that would make it easier, but I'm not going to go into that right now. It seems <laughs> like I'm getting lost in the weeds like I frequently do whenever there's a technical problem. Um, we should start a, a, a second feed called The Weeds with Joe. <laughs> Weed whacking with Joe. <laughs> and it's just me where I pontificate about silly ideas for things? Oh, just, you know, just a, just a free verse, you know, exploration of your mind. Right. Oh. <laughs> Stream of consciousness. Yeah. Everybody yeah. would love to hear that. <laughs> Suddenly everybody finds out how much I like chickens. Uh these tokens are what attackers are going to go after, uh, especially if you start using multi-factor authentication. Mm. Because if I can get the token, uh, I am, I'm going to be able to impersonate you on a much more authentic level. Right. Uh, but those tokens do need to be breached somehow uh, with the installation of malware or with the inadvertent disclosure. Uh, and there's a number of ways you can protect against that. Uh we, we all understand the compromise of a collaboration app would be a very bad thing, but this is where your policies are really going to come in handy, mm. right? It doesn't matter that, uh, that your boss is on, on Slack telling you that you need to send $10,000 to somebody. That, that's not how we do business. Right, right, right. That needs to be clearly communicated policy. Um, of course, there are other things that uh, might indicate compromise, but 
again, I don't want to get in the weeds. The uh, security is not being enabled by default on these apps. And we talk about this frequently. These apps want adoption, Mm -hmm. right? And in order to get adoption, they go with the least amount of friction for the user to set up and start using the apps. Right. Uh, So the app publishers or manufacturers or authors, whatever you want to call them, they're probably not going to go ahead and, and enable security by default. Probably not going to not going to happen. Yeah. Uh, so you're going to have to do that. Behavior analytics is great, I think, but it still requires that somebody uh, be sending malicious messages hmm. to violate the behavior analytics, mm-hmm. right? So, in other words, in the example that that you and Tobias talked about, was the uh, you know, I'm not there on Friday, but on Friday I start sending a thousand messages. Okay, something's up. Okay, but I still right. have to send the thousand messages for that to set off a flag. Right. Right. But now I can catch it sooner. Yeah, and it could also be, you know, I'm logging in from the Virgin Islands right. where I've never yeah. been before. That, <laughs> or something, you know. That should be that should be something that just ends the session, I think. Right. Right. <laughs> right. A um, couple of good uh, suggestions. Rotate the content or rotate the uh, these these tokens. Rotate mm-hmm. these tokens frequently. That way, if somebody does steal a token, it's only good for a certain amount of time. Uh, time is your enemy when when you're talking about breaches. Anything you can do to cost the uh, the attacker time is good. Uh, and add content scanning, which I think should be enabled on everything mm. by default. Uh, you know, you don't just trust anything that anybody sends you, even if it's on one of these systems you believe to be closed. Yeah, scan yeah. the content. All right. Well, again, our thanks to Tobias Pischel for joining us. He is head of information and email security at Broadcom, and we do appreciate him taking the time. We want to thank all of you for listening, and of course, we want to thank our sponsors at Before. They are experts at enabling a fully integrated approach to security awareness training. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. Our thanks to Harvard Labs and the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at harborlabs.com and isi.jhu.edu. We'd love to know what you think of this podcast. You can email us at hackinghumans at n2k.com. Your feedback helps us ensure we're delivering the information and insights that help keep you a step ahead in the rapidly changing world of cybersecurity. N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. This show is edited by Elliot Peltzman. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.